Our second reading this morning is from Romans chapter 5. I will read verses um, 6 through 11. Hear the word of God. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled by God to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you have been saved, if you've been born again, if you are a follower of Christ, then I have two important questions for you. Question number one, what were you saved from? Question number two, when were you saved? What were you saved from and when were you saved? These are really basic questions, but you would be surprised how many well-intentioned Christians don't know the basic biblical answers to these questions. Thanks be to God, the Apostle Paul answers these questions for us in our readings from Romans chapter 5. And so our job this morning is to answer these two questions. What are we saved from and when are we saved? Every book has a theme, every novel tells a story, and the theme and the story of the Bible is salvation from beginning to end. The Bible is about salvation. It is the story of how God saves his people. Now, salvation is one of those churchy words, and I'm very wary of church words because they are sometimes so familiar to us that we no longer hear them. And so for just a few minutes, I want you all to pretend that you are unchurched pagans and that you've never heard the word saved or salvation before. Can you do that? In Hebrew, the word uh, used is yasha or yeshua for the verb to save and for the noun salvation. And these words appear over and over again in the Old Testament, literally hundreds of times. In the Old Testament, the primary meaning of the word is to be rescued from some calamity, something 
terrible is about to happen to you and God saves you from that disaster. Something really terrible has happened to you and God rescues you from that situation. That's how salvation is primarily used in the Old Testament. In our call to worship this morning from Psalm 62, uh, we heard David declare, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He is my rock and my salvation, my fortress I shall not be shaken. So from what dangers does this fortress protect David? From what perils is David saved? From what calamity is David rescued? David, of course, is the king of Israel. It's got to be the worst job on planet earth. He's the personal embodiment of the sovereignty of this nation. And this tiny little nation is surrounded by enemies on all sides. All these enemies eager to overrun its territory, eager to reduce its inhabitants to slavery. But not only does the king of Israel have problems outside his borders, he also has problems inside the kingdom as well. False friends who want to take the throne. Monday morning quarterbacks who second guess every decision that he makes. People driven by jealousy and resentment who want to see him fail. It's a tough job. It's the life of a king. These difficulties go with that territory. David describes this in part in in another section of Psalm 62 where he writes, How long will you assault me? Would you, would all of you throw me down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies with their mouths they bless, but with their hearts they curse. When David declares that God is his hope, that God is his salvation, that God is his fortress, David isn't talking about some kind of spiritual salvation. He's talking about something very earthly, something very temporal. He's talking about protection for himself and for his kingdom from calamities that threaten him. That's the primary understanding of salvation in the Old Testament. We see that same concept in the song of Moses, that song that the children of Israel sang on the far side of the Red Sea. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, he has become my salvation. The army of the Pharaoh had come up out of Egypt chasing the children of Israel who are in the wilderness at this point, hoping to capture them and to take them as slaves back into Egypt. But then God intervenes and God drowns the Egyptian army and God becomes their salvation. So if we ask David, what are you saved from? He might say something like, I was saved from enemies outside of our borders and from conspirators inside our borders. And if we ask Moses, what were you saved from? He might say something like, 
We were saved from slavery and from the armies of Pharaoh. Salvation understood that way might sound too physical or too earthbound to satisfy those of you who are more spiritual or churchy. When we say that God is our Savior, you might ask, don't we mean that He saves our souls and not just our skins? Without a doubt, the Old Testament saints understood God to be the Savior of their physical bodies and their earthly kingdoms. It is a mistake to overly spiritualize salvation in the Old Testament. But in God's unfolding and ever fuller revelation, the spiritual component of God's salvation becomes clearer and clearer over time. We begin to see this already in the Psalms where David clearly understands that there is a spiritual component as well to physical salvation. In Psalm 130, David says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. Redemption is a synonym for salvation. It means to save or to rescue someone from slavery by paying a ransom price. And what is Israel to be rescued from in this psalm, in Psalm 130? Not from physical slavery in Egypt, but from spiritual slavery to iniquity, which is just a fancy word for sin. Psalm 103, likewise understands the connection between God's redemption and our sin. We read, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This phrase, He redeems your life from the pit, calls to mind Joseph, who was thrown into a pit and sold as a slave down into Egypt. But it also anticipates the image given to us in Revelation chapter 9, where hell is described as a bottomless pit. David recognizes that God brings many benefits, including physical benefits like healing, but he also sees that there's a spiritual component to all of this, our sins and God's redemption of our lives from the consequences of sin. Now in the New Testament, the word for salvation is sozo. And this word, again, appears hundreds of times. It is used almost always for a kind of spiritual salvation. There are a couple of exceptions, however. In Matthew 14.30... We see Peter walking on the water toward Jesus. And as he begins to sink, Peter cries out, Lord, save me. Now in that place, Peter means, Lord, save my skin. Lord, don't let my body drown. He's not talking about anything spiritual there. But in nearly every other place in the New Testament, the words save and salvation concern the total human, 
which is this combination of body and soul. Which brings us back to the two big questions that we began with. Questions for born-again believers. What were you saved from? And when were you saved? Paul answers the first of these questions in Romans 5, 9, where he tells us that we are saved from the wrath of God. That verse reads this way. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by Jesus from the wrath of God. In other words, if you say I've been saved, what you mean is is that I've been saved from the wrath of God. Now some of you might be thinking, hold on a second, wait. Please don't tell me, preacher, that when God saves me, all he's doing is saving me from himself, from his own wrath. You mean to tell me that Jesus died on a cross just because his father was angry with me? Why couldn't God the Father simply leave off with this anger and save his own son's life? Well, let me answer the question directly and then we'll dig into it a bit and see if we can find the reasons. So the direct answer is, yes, it is from the wrath of God that we are saved. That's what the Bible teaches The death of Jesus, which is an atonement for our sin, a propitiation to God, the Father, saves us from the wrath of God. That's what it does. And so Paul says with good reason and good faith that we are saved by Jesus from the wrath of God. Now I understand that this idea that we need to be saved from the wrath of God is morally repugnant to some people. But... Let's think about it for a minute, what the logical alternative would be. The only other logical option to Jesus saving us from the wrath of God would be Jesus saving us from the wrath of Satan. Some people have a theology that makes Satan the keeper of hell In the same way that God is the keeper of heaven. Satan becomes a kind of supernatural slave owner in the underworld plantation. And he looks to kidnap and enslave as many souls as he can. Or Satan becomes a kind of supernatural warden in an underground prison. And he delights in punishing the inmates for all of eternity. We see this idea in expressions like giving the devil his due. Or there will be hell to pay. Gary Larson, in his Farside cartoons, does a great job of capturing this popular theology. How many of you know Gary Larson's Farside? Fascinating. Fascinating cartoons. I I, uh, recommend them to you. In the Farside, Satan and his demons preside over hell like merry tormentors of the damned. Now, I don't know if you can see this, but in this picture here, we see the jazz great Charlie Parker suffering the endless torments of having to listen to New Age music. Okay, so the devil's outside of the sound booth, and Charlie Parker's locked inside of the sound booth and has to listen to this awful music. Now, people like me go to a a different kind of hell. You can give me the next slide there. My hell 
uh, is a pot of cold coffee in a room full of numbskulls, which is what it, what's going on here. And, and the, the tagline there says, oh man, the coffee's cold, they've thought of everything. Alright, again, so the devils are reigning. The devils are ruling hell in this picture. Now those of you who believe that certain kinds of instruments and certain kinds of music are more holy than others will be pleased to know that Gary Larson agrees with you. And so here we see on the top side of the panel, the entrance to heaven, harps are for heaven, and on the bottom side of the uh, panel, accordions are for hell. All right. According to the far side theology, which a lot of people believe, Satan owns hell the same way that God owns heaven. And if God saves us, it must be by rescuing us from the devil's domain, by posting bail or by paying a ransom to the prince of darkness. According to this far side theology... God rescues us from the wrath of the evil one, which makes God look like a good guy. As attractive as that theology might be, however, let me tell you, it's not Christian. It's not biblical. And it's not what Jesus taught. Heaven and hell are rewards and punishments And God alone dishes those out. God is the creator of hell just as surely as God is the creator of heaven. And the Bible makes it clear that Satan and all those who remain in rebellion against God, whether they are angels or humans, will be locked up in that bottomless pit for all eternity. Satan no more rules hell than a convict on death row rules the penitentiary. Satan is loose right now. The Apostle Paul, Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan is on the loose right now, but the end of the story for Satan comes in Revelation 20.10, where we read, The devil was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophets had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. End of story. That's the devil's story. He's not in charge of anything. Hell may be his permanent home, but it certainly isn't his kingdom. We are not saved from the devil or from the devil's wrath. We are saved from the wrath of God. Now, as we clarified a few weeks ago, the wrath of God is frightening, the wrath of God is properly dreadful, but the wrath of God is also intimately connected with the love of God. God's wrath is God's blazing hatred and judgment against all things that destroy or deform whatever God loves. The intensity of God's wrath is an indication of the intensity of God's love. Think of the fury of a mother bear defending her cubs. That gives you a little image of how ferocious God can be. 
and defending all of the good things, all of the things which are dear to his heart. We are saved from God's wrath at the cross of Jesus because Jesus in his own body bears, absorbs, suffers God's wrath on our behalf. The divine judicial punishment for our sin was placed on Jesus and he was cursed and crushed in our place. In the cross, the infinite mercy of God meets the terrible wrath of God. And we, guilty sinners all, find safety and solace only in the shadow of the cross. For only there can we be saved from the wrath of God. And we are saved from the wrath of God because we are justified by God by our faith in Jesus Christ. Our justification by faith gives us a perfect judicial record at the eternal court of justice. By faith in Jesus, our sins are transferred to him and his perfect record of righteousness is transferred to us. And so we stand before God perfectly justified and not deserving God's wrath, but rather receiving God's blessings and God's favor. Now, let me say quickly, and we'll talk about this more in the coming weeks. Let me say quickly that we are not only saved from God's wrath, we are also released from the bondage of sin. Our justification by faith in Jesus Christ saves us from the wrath of God. It releases us from the eternal judicial punishment of the law. But as we're going to discover in the weeks ahead, our faith also breaks the daily bondage of sin. One of the frustrations of the Christian life is is that while we might be justified before God, while we might be welcomed as beloved sons and daughters of God, we continue to struggle on a daily basis with sin and with all of the consequences of sin in our lives. Scripture describes the natural man's relationship with sin as bondage or as slavery. But when we come to Christ in faith, we receive a new master. Jesus becomes our master, and we are become his servants. And as we begin to live in that new identity and that new relationship day by day, the old bondage, the old slavery to sin begins to loosen. Not all at once, never fully until the day we die, but little by little we get freer and freer. We'll hear more about that in the weeks to come. The two big questions that we started this sermon with are, what are you saved from and when were you saved? We answered the first question, what are you saved from? We're saved from the wrath of God. And we're also in a subsidiary kind of way saved from bondage to sin, which we'll talk about later. So what about the second question? When are you saved? This sounds like a simple question. But it actually is terribly complicated, and that complication has something to do with the strange relationship between time and eternity, with the relationship between the human realm and the divine realm, and we'll probably circle back on this question a number of times in the future as well. But this morning, I simply want to make one observation based upon our reading from Romans 5. Paul writes, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Paul thinks it's important to point out when Jesus did the work that redeems us, that saves us from God's wrath. Jesus did it while we were sinners. There are a thousand things that are important about that little fact. There are a thousand facets to the relationship between eternity and our lives here and now. But I just want to make one practical point. Because Jesus died for you while you are a sinner, you don't have to clean up your act before you bow down at Jesus' feet. Because Jesus died for you while you were a sinner, you know he loves you in spite of your sin. Because Jesus died for you while you are a sinner, today can be for you the day of salvation. The pump has been primed. The shell has been loaded. Everything is set and ready to go. We just need to pull the trigger. Because no one is saved unless they freely, consciously, and intelligently respond to God's invitation by saying yes to God. Jesus said, come to me. All you who are weary and heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. We don't get the rest if we don't come to Jesus. Jesus won't come in and eat with us if we won't open the door for him. What I'm saying is that we have to respond To God's invitation. God has done everything that's required from his side. He's accomplished everything that is needed for our salvation at the cross of Christ. But that salvation is not ours until we receive it. Everything is ready. Christ died for us while we were sinners. And so if you have never yet said yes to Christ, then I invite you to stop fooling around. And to pull the trigger and to say yes to Christ today. Let today be the day of your salvation. Let us pray. Father God Almighty, we thank you for your word. Your word which stands the test of time. Your word which is true amid all of the changing opinions of our time and our age. Lord, we pray that we would stand in awestruck wonder of your purity and your holiness and your majesty. Lord, I pray that we would have a healthy fear of you in your dignity and your wrath. Lord, I pray as well that we might have the faith to receive Jesus Christ and to receive his free offer of salvation through faith. Lord, I pray that your mercy might find its way in our hearts and give us what it is that we need to receive you this day. Lord, we have no hope outside of you. We have no hope in ourselves. And so this day we pray for the faith to receive you as Lord and Savior. These prayers we offer in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Okay.